This program is the first in a series of audio and video segments brought to you by a partnership between the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, DBSA, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, ACNP. The questions addressed in this series were selected from an online survey conducted by DBSA regarding the interest and concerns of individuals living with depression or bipolar disorder about research surrounding the cause and treatment of mood disorders. This podcast, Diagnosis, Causes, and Course of Mood Disorders, Part 1, features two of the nation's leading researchers in mental health, Dr. Ellen Frank, Professor of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and Dr. Andrew A. Nirenberg, Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Our distinguished guests are interviewed by Sherry Jenkins Tucker, Executive Director of the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, and Kevin Simbor, DBSA Chapter Services Coordinator. What are the, the major differences between bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and depression? So the major differences between bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and major depression has to do with the history of having either mania or hypomania. So with bipolar 1, people have to have a history of a full manic episode, uh, which is highly disruptive, uh, really interferes with their lives, and is clear and distinct from their normal selves. With bipolar 2, they have a hypomanic episode, which is both of less severity and a shorter duration. Uh, in DSM-4, it's defined as being no, more than, no less than four days. With depression itself, there's just no mania, no hypomania. So you find sometimes uh, these symptoms can be subtle, especially in their early stages, or not? Um, absolutely. Early on, it may be very difficult to define episodes, so that the transition from someone's normal mood into a hypomania may be something that uh, the person himself or herself doesn't notice, and people around them barely notice until the episode is really full-blown. And if I can add, one of the other things that I think we're understanding is that part of the disorder is actually a dysregulation, meaning that people may react more than they otherwise would or would be expected to, get more sad with things, get more excited by things, and it can be very subtle, but it looks like a dysregulation not only in mood but even in other spheres like anxiety. And, and I think another important point is that I often believe, often say, that these are not really just mood disorders. These are also disorders of energy. So sometimes we don't so much see a change in mood as a change in the person's energy level. And that's another clue to, to watch out for. Why does it take so long to get a correct diagnosis, particularly with bipolar disorder, and what can we do about this? Well, I think there's really one quick answer to that, and that is that this is a, a, a longitudinal diagnosis, but we see people cross-sectionally. People don't come into our offices and stay for a year. If that happened, we'd probably be able to make this diagnosis much earlier. But in fact, people generally tend to present for treatment when they're depressed, so we don't see them in hypomania, mm -hmm. uh, or present for treatment when they're floridly manic and, and not necessarily coming of their own accord. But it's that cross-sectional view that we have to depend on and getting a good history from someone 
that makes it often difficult to detect the presence of, of subtle bipolar disorder. Another challenge is that people don't know that something is wrong. That they know themselves and they think that the way they are is the way they ought to be. And it takes a while for people to understand not everybody is necessarily like that and that this is not helpful to them. So the threshold to seek care can actually be very high. You spoke about um, a cross-section in the history of people, and one of the things that a lot of uh, people want to know is if uh, someone with a mood disorder and is diagnosed with other psychiatric disorders, such as anxiety, um, personality disorder, substance use, um, how do professionals differentiate between the disorders when they're present, and how can we tell if a specific behavior is due to that disorder? Well, it turns out that most people with mood disorders have more than just the mood disorder. Now, the dsm four classification is just a classification, but people tend to have multiple problems that go along with having the mood disorder. So as you mentioned, they could have a lot of anxiety. Half the people with bipolar disorder may have another anxiety disorder. Up to 60%, 70% of people with major depression may also have an anxiety disorder. But they also have other things. And again, if you conceptualize it around that dysregulation, there are a lot of ways that people are dysregulated, both in terms of energy, anxiety, impulsivity, and then the ways that they try to help themselves in some ways or get relief cause them problems. So you have substance abuse disorders, alcohol disorders, and then it makes it very difficult to live a life, have relationships, function in at work, and then it can turn into a, a personality disorder. What uh, we call what a we pers- call a personality, personality disorder, disorder, which is a stable way of not dealing with the world in the most helpful way. And to go on that, to uh, is with multiple disorders, how does one tell if they're excessive or overstated? You mean you've been given too many diagnoses? Exactly. Um, I don't know that there's a good way to tell. Um, we often try to sort of make a list of the, okay, what's your bipolar disorder, what's your anxiety disorder, what's you've been given this label borderline personality disorder. Well, if you put those all out on a a single page, you'll see that the symptoms of these disorders often overlap. I think when it's useful to have these multiple diagnoses is when there are distinct treatments for each one. So um, to have five diagnoses, but there really aren't distinct treatments for them is not helpful. To know that you have bipolar disorder and also panic disorder may be very helpful because there are specific treatments, particularly behavioral treatments, that may be helpful for the panic disorder that have nothing to do with treating someone's bipolar disorder. And a similar area is in attention and attentional problems and a comorbid diagnosis of ADHD, which would require a different treatment. The other thing that we're increasingly recognizing is that there's medical problems that go along with both depression and bipolar disorder, and those really need to be attended to also. At what age is it possible to start seeing signs of mood disorders? Well, I think in very rare cases we may see them 
as young as 18 months or two years. That's very rare. I, we also clearly see prepubertal depression and bipolar disorder. Again, relatively rarely, but it happens. I think the most common period for onset of both depression and the bipolar disorders is in that post-pubertal transition into early adult life. That's when we typically see the, the first onset of symptoms. There can also be some manifestations that occur very young, which again points to a dysregulation. So there's something called behavioral inhibition. And that is you can take a very young child and they're the children who will hide if they have someone new come into the room or if they see something novel. And there, there is an extreme range that may put these children at risk of having both anxiety disorders and mood disorders. On the other far end of the spectrum are the kids who just burst into any place and are completely fearless uh, and may in fact take risks that ordinarily they wouldn't see in a kid who didn't have that. So you can see these things very young. It's not that often. Right. But, but it, and they don't always evolve into not, full That's right. It's not, it's not specific to that. But in the offspring of people who have the disorders, it's something to watch for. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are distinct differences between pediatric and adult bipolar disorders or other disorders? Mm, I wouldn't say distinct differences. What I'd say is that the disorder seems to evolve into something that's more clearly episodic so that um, my colleagues who work with pediatric bipolar disorder tell me that in younger people we don't see so much the clear distinct episode of depression period of euthymia, episode of mania, but more um, uh, mood dysregulation that may go on over the course of the day. So that um, in, in that way, I think the pediatric disorders look a little different. And there's also some controversy about severe irritability, what that means, uh, whether that will actually turn into adult bipolar disorder or not. But again, these kids have a very tough time. Are there any tests uh, on the horizon, genetic or imaging, that can help diagnose depression or bipolar disorder? No. <laughs> there, there are, there's a big uh, research effort to find a blood test, a gene, a uh, neuroimaging test, but we're not there yet. There's very interesting research that shows there are differences between people who have the disorder and people who don't. But to make it into a diagnostic test is a whole other level of research and we're not quite there yet. And what worries me is that there are clinics that are promoting brain imaging and other uh, methods as tests for these conditions and they absolutely are not um, definitive tests. So I think uh, people need to be very wary of the promise that a single blood test or a single brain image without a good history can really tell you anything about whether someone has a bipolar disorder, unipolar depression. Unipolar. Right, I, and I agree because there's some marketing of gene tests. Mm -hmm. that it, it's simply not at the point where you want to pay for that. 
I, I believe that it's a waste of your money. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with getting a neuroimaging test and somebody will tell you what you have. Even in areas where we have very specific gene information, so for example in the area of breast cancer, the test as to whether or not you have BRCA1 or 2 simply tells you about your risk of getting a particular kind of breast cancer. It's not a definitive test for whether you are going to have it definitely or not. And I, right. So I think we're a long way away from a, a definitive test. My understanding is, is that most bipolar research done on bipolar disorder has been done on bipolar, people who have bipolar 1. Um, why is this and is this going to change? There, there is a lot of research on bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Uh, what is less clear is what to do about bipolar 2 depression. That, that mm -hmm. is now controversial, but there's actually a fair amount of research that's being done on that that I, I think will help us know within a few years about the best approaches. And that's both, both psychotherapeutic and in mm -hmm. terms of pharmacologic interventions. What I think has been the case is that people have generally focused either just on bipolar 1 disorder or on both bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. We're just beginning to see studies that focus exclusively on bipolar 2 disorder. And the results of those studies won't be known for several years, but we are beginning to see an interest in bipolar 2 disorder as an entity by itself. And, and we do have to be careful because it's very hard to diagnose bipolar 2 disorder. And our level of agreement with doing rigorous diagnoses of bipolar 2 is actually not great because it's hard to get, it's hard to interpret the stories that people have. Right. So the people who are chronically depressed, and then they might feel better, and they experience that as a mood elevation, but in fact they're just up to the level that they would consider to be normal. And how to interpret when you go above that, but not into a full-blown manic episode is actually difficult, and it takes a lot of clinical savvy to do that. Right. The other thing is that um, we keep using this word evolve, and the disorder may evolve from bipolar 2 disorder into bipolar 1. So someone who starts out with milder symptoms of mania that we call hypomania may in another five years experience a full-blown episode of mania, and then we change the diagnosis. Right. Can you tell me what some of the causes of depression and bipolar disorder are? I don't think we really know at the most fundamental level what the causes are. Um, we know what kinds of changes are observed. We know a great deal about how the brains of individuals who have depression or who have bipolar disorder differ, how the uh, neurophysiology, the, the, the physiology of the brain and, and the the soup the brain is sitting in uh, differs when someone is in an episode and someone is outside of an episode, but we don't really know what causes these disorders. There's probably multiple causes and there are also probably multiple disorders uh, that tend to look alike but are actually very different. So there are a lot of flavors that depression comes in, there's a lot of flavors that bipolar disorder can come in. And we think that there's a genetic component, 
there is an environment component to that. There might be a nutritional component that, that's associated with that. There might be a way that how people are able to or not able to cope with stress. That may be part of it also. Uh, but we, we're trying to learn every day about the causes. There's a lot of research done on genes. And the genetic research is very complicated, uh, but it's moving forward very quickly. And we hope to see advances in this in the, in the next five to ten years. But we have to forewarn people, it's very complicated, and we're not going to find one cause. We will or one gene. Or one gene. It's probably multiple, multiple genes that all interact. And we have a better understanding of how the genes interact with the brain and what happens with the environment. So we're learning. We're trying. We're working on it. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And if you just think about it, if you think about how much more complicated an organ the brain is compared with the kidney or the liver um, or even the heart, um, it's not surprising that, it's, that we're having such a difficult time with this. I think the hope is that probably what we will learn is that there are genes for suicidality, that there are genes for the sleep disturbances that people who have mood disorders experience. There are genes for some of the metabolic problems that people who have mood disorders experience, and that no one gene is going to explain bipolar disorder. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And the, the other thing that's happening is there's research in how our brains change, how our neurons are very active, and they're changing all the time, and it's called neuroplasticity. It's uh, how well your neurons look, how well they're growing. Uh, there's a lot of work on brain fertilizers that are called growth factors, and there's a very exciting work done on how we grow new neurons as adults. And it seems that there's something that's going on in that whole area that may give us clues to what is going on. And, you know, I, I, as much as we're focused on the, the genetics and the neurophysiology of this, I think the, the best model for understanding how these disorders actually emerge is one that considers a vulnerability that's at the physiologic level and then some kind of trigger or stress on that vulnerability that leads to that first episode of depression or mania. Can mood disorders come on at any time or is there normally a trigger like stress or death of a loved one or some other traumatic event? Well, I think the research would suggest that there are probably, as we said earlier, subtle manifestations that may be apparent early in one's life, almost that seem almost like that person's temperament. Um, but generally, if we look carefully and we do the research right, we can almost always see some kind of a trigger. It may be what we typically think of as something stressful, for example, the death of a loved one or the loss of a, a, a spouse through divorce or loss of a job. Um, or there may be more subtle environmental triggers that have to do with 
change of seasons, length of daylight, um, uh, changes in one's routine. We've done a lot of research at Pittsburgh that suggests that marked changes in one's routine can be an important trigger, especially for individuals who have bipolar disorder. I think one of the other things that we've uh, come to learn is that usually for the first episode, there's usually a big stress. Mm -hmm. And as people have multiple episodes, they may need less and less of a stress over time until it looks like it just comes out of nowhere. But with the first depression, it's usually something that's happened, and many times it's the loss of something that's important to people, the loss of something that has great meaning. For the 20th depression, sometimes... Maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. Is there a way to predict uh, and or prevent mood disorders before the onset of the disorder? Well, there is research being done on uh, taking children who are at risk of having a mood disorder and actually teaching them cognitive behavioral techniques that will help them deal with stress better. And there's now, I think, research done in both uh, prepubertal and adolescent children that if they have that sort of training, if you will, mm-hmm. not really treatment, uh, of ways to cope with stress and other things, that you lower the probability that they'll have a problem later on. That's very exciting research in terms of prevention. I dare say that we need more research in right. prevention. Uh, and uh, it's a very important area that's very hard to study. And, and, and there's a tension between um, the, what we call a universal preventative intervention. So I go into a school system and I teach every kid in the school system uh, these preventative techniques, but I do it at a kind of uh, weak level. I don't do a very intensive intervention. That's um, relatively inexpensive to do, but the yield from it may not be that great because not every kid in the school system is vulnerable to depression. Or I spend my energy trying to identify the children who are at risk and do a more intensive intervention. I think there's there's a lot of debate in the field as to what's the best use of our resources. You spoke about um, about identifying people uh, particularly children who are at risk, and what, what would be those indicators, those risk factors? When we talk about risk, we're really talking about two kinds of risk. One comes from family history, children who come from families where there is a lot of mood disorder, unipolar dis- depression, bipolar disorder, and also probably substance use and abuse. Those are children who have a higher probability of growing into adults who have mood disorder. And if I can add one thing, that means that their parents have it or their siblings Mm -hmm. have it, that those are the people who are most at At risk. risk. And the earlier your parent or your sibling had depression or bipolar disorder, the greater your risk of having one of those illnesses is. But there are also social factors that may contribute to the risk for mood disorders. So we know that certain kinds of family constellations put kids at more risk, that certain kinds, growing up in certain kinds of environments put kids at more risk. So 
those are the things we're really talking about when we talk about risk. Thank you. Can you allude a little bit further to um, the role of trauma uh, in childhood, uh, especially in the development of you know, depression later in life? You know, we talk about certain risk indicators and whatever, but does trauma play a big factor in that as well? So trauma can play a very big part in developing a mood disorder, depending on what the trauma is, how bad it is, and at what age a child is exposed to the trauma. Uh, but we know from actually animal research that that can change the way that somebody reacts to stress for a very, very long time. And those changes can be consistent with putting someone at greater risk of developing a mood disorder. I think it's also important to remember that early trauma can be a risk factor for a range of disorders, not just depression or bipolar disorder. So we know that people who experience childhood trauma are at greater risk of developing substance use disorders, eating disorders, anxiety disorders. Relationship problems. Right. So early trauma is a bad thing, and it's bad for a variety of, of conditions. And, and the other thing that's very exciting that we're learning about is that there is a relationship between the trauma and having certain genes. So if you have certain genes and trauma, you're more likely to develop problems. But if you have other genes and trauma, you're not necessarily more likely to develop big problems. So we're understanding the interplay between genes and environment and what's really fascinating is that it seems double-sided, uh, so that as people grow up, their genes may determine what sort of environments they put themselves in. So if you're the type of person who likes to sit in the library and read, you're much less likely to have traumatic events happen. Mm -hmm. If you're the type of person who's a thrill seeker and likes to ride around on motorcycles, it's more likely that something might happen that may be traumatic. How does geography and climate affect the development of mood disorders? Well, um, we do know that for some subset of individuals with mood disorders or the vulnerability to mood disorders, the length of day, the amount of sunlight exposure can be important. So we have a whole category of mood disorders that we refer to as the seasonal affective disorders. That means that people who live at meridians where the amount of light and dark doesn't change that much over the course of the year are going to be less vulnerable than people who live at the extremes of the continent and uh, of the of the continents. So, for example, it, um, it, in the very northern countries, the Scandinavian countries, we do see significantly higher rates of mood disorder. Interestingly, though, bipolar disorder seems to be pretty invariant. That means the rate of bipolar disorder doesn't seem to vary that much from uh, one meridian to another. Right, and, and uh, some people uh, also think that if they're living in San Diego, for example, they're not going to get seasonal affective disorder. But one of my colleagues pointed out to me, most people spend their time indoors, mm -hmm. and they don't actually don't have a lot of exposure to the light. 
So there is an increased risk if you're in the northern. There's a decreased risk in southern, but it's still a risk. Unless you're living in Australia. Yeah, that's right. It goes the other way. That's right. How are hormones like cortisol related to the development of mood disorders? So cortisol is one of the stress hormones, and that under conditions of stress, we produce a lot of cortisol. Now, that's okay if you do that for a short amount of time, but if you do it for too long, it actually can cause changes in the brain that make one more vulnerable to getting depressed. So that persistent high levels of cortisol can actually be damaging in subtle ways to certain areas in the brain that make it so that your neurons aren't as um, plastic. Plastic. Uh, they, they don't make the connections so well and that it can actually turn off the genes that produce the brain fertilizer. So you make less of what's called the growth factors and that causes all sorts of difficulties. Do you think uh, diet and nutrition um, affect mood disorders and their causes and, and sort of triggers or things like that? Sorry. So I, I don't think um, a poor diet can cause depression. I don't think a poor diet can cause bipolar disorder. But um, as your grandmother told you, you know, if you eat three meals a day and that they're nutritious, that will have a benefit in terms of your sense of well-being and how you feel. What I think often happens to individuals who have mood disorders is that the energy required to produce good nutritious meals just isn't there. So in a kind of vicious cycle, the mood disorder leads to poor nutrition and the poor nutrition leads to feeling worse, which and so on and so forth. But does any one nutrient cause bipolar disorder or depression? No. Well, there, there is a theory about the, uh, uh, the omega fatty acids uh, that suggests that if you eat too little omega-3, which is in fish mostly, um, and you eat too much omega-6, that, that it'll cause a um, imbalance in what you're producing. So the theory is that the omega-3 will be the building blocks to build anti-inflammatory uh, substances, and the omega-6 are the building blocks for the inflammatory substances. And there's a lot of research now done on inflammation in the brain and the relationship between that and depression. But the other part of it is that the omega-3 makes up your, uh, the, the linings of the cell and is actually more slippery than omega-6. And it turns out that it's a good thing if it's slippery because things can move around that have to move around. So there may be some individuals who would be vulnerable if they're really not eating enough of the omega-3 as opposed to the omega-6, and we're also doing research to see if you ingest some of the omega-3s, will that actually work as an antidepressant? 
And again, there's this some research that suggests maybe, but we're trying to do a definitive right. and, study. And so, so, far, so far, we haven't seen big effects. Right. Um, there was one study that looked at, in the hope that this might be a treatment for pregnant women who weren't, who didn't want to take conventional antidepressant or antipsychotic drugs. And the results were not, they didn't um, knock you in the face. Right, right. And, and there, there's some other research that shows that maybe there's an optimal dose and mm -hmm. that if you take too little, it doesn't work. And if you take too much, it doesn't work. And again, we're trying to clarify that. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of DBSA Real Recovery Podcast, brought to you in partnership with the ACNP. Special thanks to our panelists, Dr. Ellen Frank and Dr. Andrew Nirenberg, and our interviewers, Sherry Jenkins-Tucker and Kevin Simbor. Additional segments in this series include the podcast, Diagnosis, Causes, and Course of Mood Disorders, Part 2, and the video presentation, Medication, Treatment, and Working with Professionals. Please take a moment to share your thoughts and opinions about this segment and topic by filling out our online survey for Diagnosis, Causes, and Course of Mood Disorders, Part 1, at www.dbsalliance.org slash ACNPA1.